Daniel chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom and over these three governors, of whom Daniel was one, that the satraps might give account to them so that the king would suffer no loss. Then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him and the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. So the governors and the satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful, nor was there any error or fault found in him. Then these men said, <clears throat> We shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. So these governors and satraps thronged before the king and said thus to him, King Darius, live forever. All the administrators of the kingdom, the administrators and satraps, the counselors and advisors have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which does not alter. Therefore, King Darius signed the written decree. We come now to one of the most beloved stories in all of the Bible, even with people who have little or no religious upbringing, church association, even people who don't know a whole lot about God or the Bible are somewhat familiar of the story of Daniel in the lion's den. The chapter begins with a description of the position of Daniel in verses 1 through 3, and then the plot against Daniel in verses 4 through 9, and then the prayer of Daniel in verses 10 and 11, and then the prosecution of Daniel in verses 12 through 17. And in this chapter, Daniel will be the victim of an evil plot, but he's also going to be the recipient of supernatural and divine protection in verses 18 through 28. So in this chapter, we learn that sometimes prosperity and fidelity and faithfulness can lead to persecution. Think about it. Faithfulness to the Lord can sometimes generate hostility towards the saints of God. And sometimes it's possible for you to experience painful persecution, not because you've done something wrong, but because you've done something right. When we began the book of Daniel, he was a young man, a teenager, uprooted, plucked from his hometown of Jerusalem, dragged some 800 miles into Babylon. Now he's well into his 80s. 
Daniel has lived most of his life estranged from the place of his birth. He lives in Babylon, but his heart is in Jerusalem. His affections are in Jerusalem. He knows that where he is and what he is doing isn't really his permanent home. And so it is for the Christian. You are a citizen of two worlds. You are here, but there's something inside of you that knows that you are going to wind up somewhere else. It's the new Jerusalem. It's the heavenly Jerusalem. He lives in Babylon, but he longs for home. And he's lived most of his life in faith and prayer to the Lord Most High. His life of faithfulness and prayer has remained with him in his teens and his 20s and his 30s and his 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s. He's been a man who's been faithful his whole life. And this should tell us something right off the bat. That age is no protection against testing and temptation. Those of you in your 20s, you might think that you're in some sort of isolated group where you're the only ones who have painful difficulties, temptations, and tests, but it isn't true. By the way, if you're 40 years old, can you testify that you too are subject to temptation and test? 50, 60, 70. Yes, 80 maybe. That as you walk into the future, there's still trial and there's still test. And so Daniel's going to serve as an illustration of faithfulness for all generations. And I want you to think about this, that even in his 80s, he is still faithful in serving the Lord. The writer of Hebrews in the Hall of Faith in chapter 11 speaks of Daniel when he writes, quote, in verse 33, who through faith, subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. The writer of Hebrews is reflecting on the passage that we're beginning to study at this very moment. As a life and an example of faith, Daniel's life of public service and personal devotion is going to bring him to a place where he's going to participate in a legitimate act of disobedience against the government. He's going to pray, even when the government outlaws public prayer. And how does he begin his day? He prays. We know that from verse 10, which we're going to look at a little bit later, but I do want to just give you a, 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 a sneak peek. Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home and in the upper room with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as was his custom since his early days. It wasn't unusual. It was usual. In the morning, Daniel prayed. In, at noon, he prayed. In the afternoon, he prayed. Prayer for Daniel wasn't simply a religious exercise. It was a daily devotion. It was a commitment and admission of dependence. Prayer didn't exist in the 
outskirts of his worship, but it constituted the essential element of dependence upon the true and the living God. And we have every reason to believe that Daniel prayed privately and that he prayed publicly and that he prayed fervently and he prayed constantly. No wonder Daniel is called greatly beloved in chapter 9, verse 23, in chapter 10, verse 11, and then again in verse 19. Faithfulness can bring great reward, but it can also bring trial and testing and persecution. Just ask Job. Just ask Joseph. Just ask Daniel. Because if you're wondering if there is such a thing as an untested faith, you would be wrong. There is no such thing. All faith will be tested. It will be tested. The Bible says the just will live by faith in Hebrews 10.38. True biblical faith includes both substance, that's assurance, evidence, that's proof, Faith is the inner conviction that what God says and does can be trusted. It was Dr. J. Oswald Sanders who said, quote, Faith enables the believing soul to treat the future as present, the invisible as seen. By faith, we see what others cannot see and invite God's Holy Spirit to strengthen us to remain faithful to the Lord. So that we can be faithful to each other, to our husbands, to our wives, to our children, to our grandchildren, to our future, the future that God describes in the Bible. And so the passage begins with a description of Daniel's authority. Look again in verse one. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom from chapter five. Remember the writing on the wall. Babylon hasn't ceased to exist, but has transitioned into a new kingdom where Darius has been named head with political power and authority. And so the Lord elevates Daniel to a position of great power, great authority. The king, this new king recognizes in Darius well, the new king Darius recognizes in Daniel the character qualities that are going to be necessary to administer the new regime. Now, the Medes and the Persians are now firmly in control over Babylon. They have firm control over the north. They have firm control over the south. They have firm control over the peninsula called the Levant, which stretches from Turkey all the way to the mouth of Egypt. So the provinces are divided into 120 administrative districts that are governed by local leaders who are called satraps. The title roughly translates to what you and I would call a local president or a local ruler or king. And for this reason, each of the provinces are called a satrapy or a satrapy. And it says, and over these three governors of whom Daniel was one, that the satraps might give account to them so that the king would suffer no loss. Now in this hierarchy, Darius appoints three governors. 
it would appear that Daniel is one of the governors, then there's another governor and a third governor. If our understanding of the political processes of those days are correct, it stands to reason, it makes probably good sense that Daniel is going to administer and be accountable for about 40 of these regions. Another governor is going to be accountable for another 40 regions. Then the other governor is going to be accountable for, for 40 regions. Now, let me put it even more plainly. The governors are tasked with the administrative stewardship so that the king will suffer no loss. What's the chief characteristic of the administrative ruler? What's the seminal trait that the administrative ruler needs? It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2, where Paul says, moreover, it is required in stewards that they be found faithful. In other words, Daniel and these two other people and the 120 satraps are tasked with making sure that everything is run with honesty, integrity, and fidelity. So, it's Daniel's task to root out corruption, to make sure that the appropriate funds make their way to the king's treasury. We might think of this as Daniel draining the swamp. <laughs> now I want you to think about what's going on in the text. Then this Daniel, verse 3, distinguishes himself above the governors and satraps because he has an excellent spirit in him. And the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. In other words, Daniel acts with such complete honesty integrity, fidelity, and commitment that like Joseph, his long, long relative from long ago in Egypt, this king is thinking about that no one, no one acts with more honesty, integrity, and fidelity than Daniel. So now remember Daniel's old. Now here's when you know you're old. It's when you look in the mirror and you look exactly like your mom and dad. <laughs> At that point, you realize you've, caught, you've crossed the threshold. In spite of his age, because of God's favor and blessing, Daniel distinguishes himself above all of his peers. And so the new king recognizes in Daniel what the text calls an excellent spirit. Well, what does that mean? Some scholars have suggested that it's a reference to the Babylonians' belief that the deities, the supernatural forces, worked through Daniel. In other words, that he didn't just have native intelligence, that there was something almost supernatural about Daniel's ability to faithfully do things right. Others say that the phrase in context more likely means that God was a that Daniel was a man of steadfast character, full of wisdom, full of integrity, full of faithfulness. So you'll remember for those of you who've been following along in our study in the book of Daniel, at the beginning of the book of Daniel, 
He and his friends are described in chapter 1, verse 17, having learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding of visions and dreams. And later in chapter 5, verse 12, we read, he has an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding to interpret dreams, solve riddles, solve problems. These were all things found in Daniel. And so the king is so impressed with Daniel's skill that the king considers placing Daniel in the position of prime minister. So imagine there's King Darius and then there's Daniel. Almost certainly it would mean they would appoint a new governor so that they would have intact the three governors and then the 120 satraps or satraps or the provinces. So sometimes God will exalt his servants through the powerful favor of leaders. Sometimes God will use people to advance the ministry that God has given to you. Last night, Joel Rosenberg was here and he was talking about meeting with the Egyptian prime minister. And a few, just almost about 18 months ago before the, I guess it was during one of the first times right before Passover, Joel and a group of, of leaders are meeting with the, with the president of Egypt, and then he goes back to Israel, and he's have, celebrating Passover with his, with his neighbor, and, and he's, he, he's saying, you know, I, I remember that there was a person who met with a former chief servant of Egypt named Moses, and he, when he talked to him, he said, let my people go. And then, and then there's Joel, and he's saying to the prime minister of Egypt, let my people come back. Let my people return. Put, put us in a, a situation where people can act and work with dignity and with respect. Now this is interesting to me. Because God will sometimes put people in positions of authority and influence almost unbelievably. What is that? Is this heavenly music to confirm what I'm saying? <laughs> and so think about what's going to happen right now. There's a plot against Daniel's integrity. Think about it in verse 4. So the governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom. But they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful. Nor was there any error or fault found in him. Now, the favor of God and the king in the ministry of Daniel apparently makes his peers resent him. There seems to be some sort of envy and jealousy and widespread difficulty. Imagine what's happening with the, gov with the other governors and with these authorities. They're basically saying, what's going on? Daniel is making it very difficult for us to lie and cheat and steal. If we can't lie, cheat and steal and enrich ourselves and our friends, who's going to want to get involved in politics? We laugh, don't we? Because we understand that our political servants are supposed to be servants of the people. If we believe what the Bible says about government, and most of us don't. 
But if we were to believe what the Bible says about government, the purpose of government is to promote righteousness and to restrict wickedness. That might come as a shock to you. It certainly comes to, uh, as a shock to some of our elected officials. It's to promote righteousness. It's to restrict wickedness. And it would seem that this plot, because of Daniel's integrity, causes them to launch what looks like a full-scale investigation into the background, the character, and the conduct of Daniel. The Bible gives repeated warnings for those who indulge in jealousy and envy. Jesus said that the source of these corrosive emotions lie in the human heart. Jesus said in Mark chapter 7 verse 20, what comes out of a person's heart is what defiles him. It is from within, out of the heart, comes evil thoughts, coveting, wickedness, deceit, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. The Bible says it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. And these rulers, these governors, these authorities are trying to find some fault with Daniel to get rid of Daniel. Why? I think you know the answer. Daniel is salt and light. He's making it not more difficult. He, he, he's, he's making it, it, he is making it difficult for them to promote wickedness. There was a man named Henri Frederick Amiel who wrote, quote, Jealousy is a terrible thing. It resembles love, only it is precisely love's contrary. Instead of wishing for the welfare of the object loved, it desires the dependence of that object upon itself and its own triumph. Love is the forgetfulness of self. Jealousy is the most passionate form of egotism, the glorification of a despotic, exacting, and vain ego which can neither forget nor subordinate itself. The contrast is perfect. In other words, these governors and satraps are jealous of Daniel. I think not just because of the excellency of his character, but I think that there's another reason. It's because he's a Jew. It's because he's a Jew. Jealousy is a kind of jaundice of the soul. But they can't have him anymore. They have to find a way to get rid of him. The presence of Daniel makes it more and more difficult to rob, steal, cheat. You know what? You might be in a position where your presence in the circumstance that you find yourself in is going to make it more and more difficult for people to lie and cheat and steal. Because you want to do what's right. Because you want to honor God and obey him. They launch an FBI investigation. Full Babylonian investigation. <laughs> and what does this full investigation yield? Look what the text says. But they could find no charge or fault. Why couldn't they? 
because he was faithful. Well, certainly there's something wrong, no, nor was there any error or fault found in him. No charge, no fault, no error, because he was faithful. Now, we know that nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect. But it's interesting to me that in the Bible, there's only a couple of characters who are spoken of with that kind of complete fidelity. Joseph, in the Old Testament, is one of them as he serves in the political role as prime minister of Egypt. And here, Daniel, what an amazing testimony. Daniel is faithful. Now again, remember, he's 80. Can you imagine they go all the way back to his teenage years? Let's go back and investigate when Daniel was in high school. <laughs> he must have done something in high school because everyone in high school does something stupid. In high school, I was voted most likely to go to hell. I'm here to tell you, I will never, ever be approved for the Supreme Court, ever. What's interesting, though, is I've undergone two FBI investigation background checks. Did you know that? I've been investigated by the FBI twice, thoroughly, completely. When I was getting my credentials for the FBI, they said, do you want to add anything after our thorough and complete investigation into your past? And I said, well, I need to tell you a little bit about my dad. <laughs> and they said, we know about your dad. I've told you about my dad. On his income tax returns under occupation, he would write legitimate businessman. And that's a red flag to the Bureau. <laughs> Daniel is faithful, constant, present. In the New Testament, Jesus says in Mark chapter 9, verse 50, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. In other words, this is Jesus' way. We're to be found faithful. Jesus is using salt as an illustration to describe three qualities that he wants desperately in his people. We are to remember God's faithfulness. Just as salt was used in the sacrificial system, it was to recall the covenant that God had made with his people in Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13. We are to be faithful and we are to be flavorful. We flavor the world just as salt changes the taste of meat in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. Salt delays decomposition. We live in a world that is rotting and corrupting and it's spiraling down. And so you have been placed in the positions that you've been placed to retard and arrest the process of decomposition. To be light and love. When we lose the desire to salt the earth, 
with the love of God and the message of Jesus and the gospel of Christ, we become useless to our Savior. One of the most despicable, despicable things that was done in this recent process of, of nominating the Supreme Court Justice, his 10-year-old daughter just simply made the statement, I am going to pray for the lady who has brought these accusations against my father. And she was vilified. A 10-year-old was vilified in the press, vilified and made to, to seem small and small-minded as if someone, even a 10-year-old in the most innocent way, could practice what the Bible preaches to love your neighbor, to love your enemy, to pray for those who hate you, to pray for those who despitefully use you. And the moment that you begin to do that, to love the people who hate you, to care about the people who torment you, and to remind them that in this broken world, there is such a thing as grace and mercy and forgiveness. You can expect opposition. When we lose the desire to salt the earth, when we lose the desire to describe the love of God, when we lose the desire to abandon the message of Jesus, we become useless to our Savior. Look, it's okay for you to be a Christian. Just keep your mouth shut. It's okay for you to be a Christian. Just don't act like a Christian. It's okay for you to be a Christian but God help us if you should have a Bible, if you should bring it to school, or if you should bring it to your place of work, that you should open it and read it. I'm not saying bring your Bible and open it and read it and not do your job. Do you think Daniel ever came to a place because of his commitment and faithfulness to God that anyone could accuse him of not doing his job? Nothing could be further from the truth. And so, we begin to understand something. What does it mean to be faithful? What does it mean to be a faithful servant to the Lord Jesus? Paul told the Corinthians, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, Paul said, You know what? I want you to honor and obey and follow Jesus. Well, how do I do that? He's, he makes this outrageous suggestion. Do what I do. It takes a lot of guts for anyone to say that. For a person to say that and say, do what I do. Well, what, what does that mean? Love him, honor him, serve him, believe him, trust him. We're to be lovers of the truth. Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians eleven ten, the truth of Christ is in me. What was the theme of Paul's preaching? The unsearchable riches of Jesus, Ephesians 3.8. Paul was motivated by the love of Jesus in 2 Corinthians 5.14. He says, it's Jesus who constrains me. And to please Jesus was his ambition, Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. Paul said, we present Christ and him crucified. Daniel wanted to love his Lord even in captivity, and even in a system, a political system, and a religious system that was utterly corrupt. In verse 5, it says, Then these men said, We shall find no charge against this Daniel unless we find it 
against him concerning the law of his God. In this statement, we find another source of the Babylonians' jealousy and envy and resentment. We shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning his God. He's a Jew. He's a Jewish captive. He's a Jew who keeps kosher, chapter 1. He's a Jew who has been noted by holiness. He's a Jew who doesn't adopt syncretism. Well, can't we just combine all of our beliefs together and come up with some sort of mutual, agreed-upon way of thinking about things rather than Daniel incorporating the best of Judaism with the best of Babylon? He separates himself from what's worst about Babylon and even what's best about Babylon. He's a man who's separate. He's holy. So Daniel is a faithful Jew who honors the Lord. And Daniel has proved faithful to the Lord and to the king. And so the wicked men hatch a plot we're not going to find any charge against this, Daniel, unless we find it concerning the law of his God. What does that mean? He, it, here's what it means. How can we use Daniel's faith as a tool to get rid of him? Well, what does he believe? What are his deeply held convictions? Daniel prays every day in the morning and at noon and at night. Daniel, even though he is perhaps one of the most powerful men in an expansive empire, takes the time to pray in the morning and pray at noon and pray at night. What are his deeply held convictions? Apparently, he's a person who prays. And apparently, he prays to his God. And apparently, he prays as a means of petition. Hey, I have a great idea. What if we make it illegal to pray? 30 years ago, if you would have said to me, do you think it's a good idea to criminalize homosexuality? I would have said, of course not. It's, I don't want homosexuals to go to jail. But if you would have said to me, what if we don't criminalize homosexuality, but we make this criminal? I believe that homosexual behavior is wrong. Do you think it's okay if we make that belief criminal? What if we criminalize the belief that wrong is right and right is wrong? What if we make it a crime that what the Bible says about the human condition, what if we make it a crime to suggest that the gospel is the way to repair that condition? What if we make it a crime to live out your deeply held beliefs in the way you live your life? What if we make it a crime? 
what if we can find a way to criminalize Daniel's faith? Wait, I got an idea. Not only will we make it a crime to pray, we'll make it a capital punishment that if you pray in the way that Daniel is praying, you could be put to death. So what's obvious about the text? Daniel is known as a Jew. He is known to believe in the God Most High. He has honored the God Most High in chapter 1, in chapter 2, in chapter 3, in chapter 4, in chapter 5. He has a long history of honoring God. Daniel's faith and faithfulness are known to his pagan peers. I want you to understand that too. Think about that for just a second. There's nothing secret or private about Daniel's faith. His peers, the people who are subordinate to him, they are all aware of Daniel's faith. Like Paul the Apostle, he is an open book read of all people. One of the real dangers that we have is to refuse to demonstrate our faith in the public square or at work because you might be thinking, well, what if I come out as a Christian? Are they going to hold me to a higher standard? Yes. You mean if I tell people that I really love God and want to honor him, people will take me up on it? Yeah. The moment that you declare that you're a Christian, there are people who will expect you to act like one and be disappointed when you don't. In verse 6, it says, So these governors and satraps thronged before the king, and they said to him, King Darius, live forever. All the governors, the kingdom, the administrators, the satraps, the counselors, the advisors have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, I want you to think about what's going on in the text. They don't make a permanent injunction that you can never pray forever and ever, amen. They just make it a temporary order so that Daniel will only have to compromise his faith for one day, two days, three days, four days. Oh, oh, by the way, if we can get Daniel to compromise for 30 times in a row, then we can laugh at him. We can laugh at him. We can put him in the position of a compromised category. When they say, oh, king, live forever. In England, when a king is crowned or the queen is crowned, they'll say, God save the king. God save the queen. And so this is an idiomatic expression in that culture, which was deference to the powers that be, the governors, the administrators, the satraps, the counselors, the advisors have all come up with a bipartisan and unanimous consensus. Can you imagine they're going to the king? Oh, king, live forever. All of the Republicans, all of the Democrats, even the independents, everyone has come together. 
everyone on the left and everyone on the right, everyone has joined together and we have united together in a bipartisan, unanimous consensus to establish a royal statute, a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, well, they'll be cast into a den of lions. Now, you guys are going, well, what's the purpose of this law? Imagine Darius says, hey, tell me about this law. What is it that, that would cause you to write this up and bring it to my attention? Why, king, it's, it's to demonstrate that all subjects in this great kingdom are loyal to its king. It's a law that's intended to provide the opportunity for every citizen to demonstrate their love and loyalty to the king. It's to show how wise and merciful and generous you are. I want you to think about this, king. Every person in the kingdom, imagine for 30 days, every person everywhere. They unite together in a singular display of unity, calling on their king, declaring their love, promoting his wisdom and generosity, acknowledging that really most of the very good things comes from him. We're going to pray a united prayer, a, a united prayer to you. We look to you as one people for our one king. We're going to trust your wisdom to, to decide exactly what it is that we need. And if someone decides that they aren't going to demonstrate this unconditional loyalty to our king and his kingdom, let's kill him. What do you say? What's the problem? What's the problem with the request? The first thing is it's not true, is it? Have all the governors been consulted together? Has Daniel been included or excluded from the discussion? He's been excluded. If you said excluded, you get it right. Why has Daniel been excluded from the conversation? Because Daniel will bring his attention to the king that this isn't a good idea. Daniel is left out of the discussions because if Daniel's been included, he would never agree to such a foolish law. Daniel would have warned the king that the only true and living God can answer certain prayers and petitions, that there's only one God in heaven, that officials have kept this piece of legislation secret from Daniel because this Law is going to result in some unintended consequences that are going to make people of faith and people committed to righteousness have to compromise their faith or ignore their faith. Remember, ancient kings were treated like gods with unlimited resources and the power of life and death. Darius would have been flattered and thrilled that all his people would unite in a single act of unconditional loyalty. Can you imagine if someone came to Donald Trump and said, every single senator, every single legislator, every single governor, every single mayor in the United States of America, every single official everywhere from Maine to California, from Minnesota to Louisiana, from, from Florida to Arizona, everyone, 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 everyone wants you to pass a law that says, let's just love Donald Trump for 30 days in a row. And Donald Trump goes, 
this sounds like a great idea. But then people start to talk to him and go, does this sound normal to you? This isn't the only example, by the way, of bad advice or evil counsel that's ever been given in the scripture. There's lots of examples of bad advice and evil counsel. Do you remember in the opening book of Genesis where we have Eve and Adam in a garden and there is a tree and there's beautiful fruit and there is counsel given to Eve. Hey, look at that fruit. Doesn't it look delicious? Hey, by the way, if you eat that fruit, you'll be wise. You'll understand things and you'll discover things that you never knew before. The Bible makes it clear that prayer alone belongs to God. In 2 Chronicles, it says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Forgiveness of sin and healing for the land isn't going to come through political processes. The only way that you are going to experience hope in your heart and forgiveness in your heart and grace in your heart and mercy in your heart is to acknowledge that it is the God of heaven who's able to provide that. Jesus said, quote, in Matthew 6, 5, and when you pray, you won't be like the hypocrites for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they might be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. Is Jesus condemning public prayer? No, he's not condemning public prayer. He's condemning hypocritical prayer. I'm going to show everybody how spiritual I am by praying in public. But it has no meaning unless you really mean it. It says in verse 8, now, O king, establish the decree, sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which does not alter. Therefore, look what it says, King Darius signed the written decree. Now, the Medes and the Persians' customs were different from the Babylonians. Remember, as we've been studying the book of, of Daniel, we saw this vision of this statue with the head of gold and the chest of silver. The empire has changed from Babylon to Medo-Persia. What's the difference? In the Medo-Persian system, once an edict is signed into law, it can't be undone even by the king. In the Babylonian system, under Nebuchadnezzar, what he said went. If he said you live, you live. If he said you die, you die. If he said you have great wealth and, and whatever, you get to have it. If he says take it away, it's taken away. In the Medo-Persian system, once an edict is signed into law, it can't be undone even by the king. So the leaders emphasize that the ordinance is unchanging. And we see the same thing in Esther chapter 1 verse 19 where there's this royal order written among the laws of the Medes and the Persians which may not be repealed. So we have a saying in our own culture and society that certain things, once it's done, we use the term written in stone, for better, for worse. 
When a person is appointed to the Supreme Court of the United States, that person is in that position in perpetuity. The only way a Supreme Court justice can be removed from office is through an impeachment process that requires criminal charges and evidence of crim criminal charges. The king signs the document. Now let's think about what's happened just for a moment. The leaders appeal to the king's pride and vanity. The government officials manipulate the king into signing an order that's going to become a permanent injunction that's going to put Daniel and anyone who believes like Daniel in jeopardy. The government officials know that Daniel won't compromise his commitment to the Lord. They know that he is going to pray. And remember, I keep telling you this, he's in his 80s. He's not this young spry chicken. He's more like beef jerky at this point. <laughs> he's not going to be all that appetizing for the, for the lions. But in order to survive... God himself is going to have to intervene. The government officials have signed the order. There's a collective sigh of relief. The powers that be are fairly certain that they're rid of Daniel. Corrupt politicians and would never conspire together to ruin and destroy one man's reputation just so that they could continue to do evil, would they? <laughs> this is fiction, right? This could never happen in real life. People wouldn't lie and cheat and steal and just so they could stay in power. That could never happen, right? No one would destroy a good and decent man's life to protect their ability to engage in wicked and corrupt behavior. It could never happen until it does. Daniel is a picture of public and personal integrity. He loves the Lord. He's honest in his stewardship. He's faithful in what's been entrusted to him. In Psalm 119, we see another picture of honest living. Quote, blessed are those who walk blameless, it says in verse 1. Blessed are those who seek him with their whole heart, who do no wrong, in verses 2 and 3. The psalmist acknowledges the Lord God. He says, you have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently, in verse 4. The psalmist hopes in his heart, Oh, oh, that I, my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all of your commandments in verses 5 and 6. Only a handful of people in the Bible receive God's pronouncement of blamelessness. Job, consider my servant. Joseph, in the book of Genesis. Daniel. In every chapter, we're not perfect. But in order to be blameless, it doesn't mean sinless. Blameless means 
I don't always do everything exactly right, but I want to. I want to honor God. I want to obey God. I, I want to embrace what the Bible says about what it means to responsibly love and serve and obey Jesus. Imagine Daniel hears the words of Jesus whispered from the future. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. For great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been falsely accused? Have you ever been rightly accused? Have you ever considered? Has it ever occurred to you? that your life is a stewardship that's been entrusted to you by the true and the living God so that you could honor him and love him. If you've never considered that, I just want you to consider it right now. I want you to think about who you are and who God's called you to be and what it is that God has entrusted you with and the future that God's about to give you. You already know what it says in verse 10. You already know that Daniel knew about the writing, knew about the law. He goes home. And he continues to do what he's always done. In the morning, at noon, and at night. He doesn't petition the king. He doesn't file for redress. He quietly, comfortably, and publicly decides that he's going to honor God in spite of the decree. He knows what the decree is going to lead to. He knows that once he's done praying that day, he's going to go to a lion's den. If you ever make the decision to do what's right and embrace the consequences of what's right, it might seem overwhelming. But I guarantee you this. The moment that you decide to honor God in the circumstance that you find yourself in, He's going to be with you, and he's going to support you in that decision. We're going to have communion right now. I didn't have a chance to tell you about communion, but at our church, we have what's called an open communion. That means it's open to anyone who knows and loves Jesus. If you're a believer, by all means, take communion. Communion is really, it's an act of love and loyalty. It's, it's, it's our way of saying I believe that Jesus is the Lord. I believe that he loves me and that he died for me on the cross and, and that he's my savior. Maybe you've never come to that place in your life. and Maybe that's not something that you really believe. But let me just ask you a couple of simple, quick questions. Do you know that you're a sinner? Would you love to have your sins forgiven? Do you believe that Jesus 
loves you and that he died on the cross for your sins, that he rose from the dead, that he's alive, then why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you accept him? Why wouldn't you submit to him? Why wouldn't you say to him, Lord, I want you to be my Lord? And if the answer is, because he might call me to a higher expectation, I'm afraid. I know that I was. The scariest thing to me about being a Christian was I knew that I couldn't be a Christian in my own strength. Because I'm a wicked person. In order for me to be different, God's going to have to change me. Well, guess what? In order for you to be different, God's going to have to change you. Here's my testimony. If you love him and believe him, if you want forgiveness of your sins, if you desire for him to change you, he will. Let me pray. We're going to have communion. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, take this and eat it, all of you. This is my body which will be broken for you. Again, he gave thanks and, and praise. He took the cup and he said, this is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new and the everlasting covenant, which will be shed for the forgiveness of sin. Do this in memory of me. Grain, in order to be ingested, has to be crushed. And the grape, trampled upon. It makes perfect sense now, Lord, that Jesus would suffer, that Jesus would die, and that a perfect person, more perfect than Job, more perfect than Joseph, more perfect than Daniel, if there was anyone who always did what was right and did what was right every single time, if he can come into this world and be killed, it makes perfect sense that we're going to suffer and that our faith is going to be tested. But Lord, in taking this bread and drinking this cup, we don't want to just philosophically or intellectually renew our commitment to you, but with hearts full of joy, tell you that we want to follow you into the future that you have for each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. You can partake.